Well, today we are continuing our series in Acts. Lovely. Good to, good to hear that you are, are getting the, the, the idea of what, what's going on. Now, one of the things I wanted to um, look at this morning was the question of sharing the gospel. Have you ever been somewhere where the gospel has been shared, be it in church or at a meeting or in a conversation with a friend? Have you ever been somewhere where the gospel has been shared and, and you have heard the greatest news in the universe? You have just been expounded upon the wonders of the glory of the free gift of grace of Jesus Christ, but then something has been added to that and then it, it becomes this almost worthless message. You know, something that went from being the best news in the universe to something that got twisted into being the most useless news in the universe and no good news at all. Now this unfortunately can happen in wonderful well-meaning, Bible-believing churches. See, we hear of many churches where they teach that in order to be saved, you have to speak in tongues. Now, that's not what the gospel teaches. And, and, and I was told a story about this um, very, a Bible-believing church in Australia, a Baptist church, where they went off to a youth camp, they had a youth camp. And when the youth pastor came home from the camp, he got chastised, he got berated, and he got disciplined because he allowed dancing at the youth camp. Hooey, we're talking about the big things here, aren't we? Now, now I'm sure that the people that did this were well-meaning. I actually know some of them. And I know that they're well-meaning and they had the right intentions because I'm sure that they wanted the youth in the church to have upright morals and to be above reproach and wanted to prevent lustful thoughts and premarital sex. I'm sure that's where they were thinking. And I understand where they're coming from on one hand because a desire for youth, for the youth of our church and young people to live a morally upright life, it's a good desire. I've never met a dad who has thought that he wants his daughter to have all the experiences she can before she gets married. I just haven't met that dad. Or, or the dad that wants his son to explore all his options and have all the experiences he can have before he makes a commitment in marriage. I just haven't met that dad in a church, have you? The desire for moral purity is a good thing. But where they went wrong was that they lost their confidence in the gospel's ability to shape and mould the souls of young people, young men and women. And instead, they attached to the greatest news in the universe, fear and control and even shame. They couldn't even trust the pastor or the kids that had grown up in the church not to fall into temptation and debauchery because of dancing. It just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But the church, and, and that church it seems particularly, has at times become a legalistic church and somewhere where the gospel never even gets a chance to be preached because they're so preoccupied with teaching all the things they shouldn't do. Don't drink, don't go to parties, don't watch R-rated movies, don't listen to this kind of music, don't play violent video games, do this, don't do that, go here, don't go there. And church becomes all about how you are supposed to behave as morally upright Christians. And so it makes complete sense that there seems to be a whole generation who say that they've tried Jesus, but it didn't work. They went to church as a kid and then to youth group, but Jesus just wasn't 
for them. But you know what? They never actually tried Jesus. They tried to be good. They tried to follow everything they were told they needed to to be morally upright church kids. But the Bible says that we suck at being good. It shouldn't surprise us that they couldn't do it because we haven't been able to either, right? You know, from the beginning, the Bible has been saying that we suck at being good. And even if we are good at being good, the Bible says that you'll become an annoying, self-righteous, self-absorbed, worthless sack of bones. I'll, I'll, I'll tell the scripture later. It's in there. So even try, it's, it's, it's a meta-narrative, you know. Uh, it, even if trying to, to, trying to be good, it, it ends up bad. Because what does it lead to? It actually leads to pride. We take pride in being a good Christian, better than everyone else and that is sin and this has at times been my experience as I've grown up in the church and I'm sure that if you have been to church your whole life then this would at times form part of your experience as well and I'm so utterly convinced that our church should be investing our energy and effort into trying to orient people around the gospel. But that's going to be harder than we think it's going to be because see, as we're looking into the future with our vision journey just around the corner where we seek to listen and hear from God what he wants for us, for our future, where he wants us to invest our time, our energy and our effort, it will all be useless if we don't have a firm foundation. Our foundation, if it is not solid, then none of that will matter. It doesn't matter how beautiful the house is if the foundation is broken. If the foundation isn't right, then the walls will crack, the ceilings will fall down, and the house will be useless and unusable. And so it's imperative that we anchor ourselves in what is true and what is right, that we anchor ourselves in the gospel. You see, through Acts we've been seeing the gospel explode all over the region. We've seen Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel all over. And if you remember what we covered last week with Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas, they were released from the church in Antioch. They travelled nearly 800 kilometres Every city they stopped in, they preached the gospel. Men and women were saved. They established churches and appointed elders. Then they moved on. They looped back to Antioch and then a disagreement breaks out. This is so church, isn't it? Things are going great and a disagreement breaks out. See, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Acts 15 verse 1. So believers have come down from, from Jerusalem to Antioch. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, they say, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. God love those Pharisees, eh? So here, the question that's being asked as the gospel makes it its way out of strict Judaism and among the Gentiles. The question is for the Jew. See, their understanding was that they were the called, anointed, covenant community of faith. And that viewpoint was correct. And so the Gentiles who wanted to worship historically, if they wanted to worship the one true God, 
would go through the process of complete obedience to the moral and to the ritual law of Moses, which meant they had to be physically circumcised ouch, and obey all of the ritual on top of the moral law. So the moral law is the Ten Commandments. The ritual law, briefly, I'm not covering it all, is, is physical circumcision, has rigid purity laws. You had to, you know, wash a certain way and a and certain amount of times before you ate and before you went into worship. And there are all these laws around what foods were clean and what foods were unclean. And there was a total abstaining from anything with blood in it. And so the argument being made in Antioch, which is primarily made up of Gentiles, was that these Gentiles were not saved, but rather for them to become Christians. They must first become Jews. And Paul, he wasn't having a bar of that. So Paul and Barnabas, according to the text, they had no small dissension, or as it says very strongly, they had a sharp dispute. And so they argue and they debate, and, and they, they head back to Jerusalem, to what we now know they, was called the Jerusalem Council, to meet with the apostles and the elders, trying to, to get to the bottom of this question. Is there anything we must do for salvation on top of grace and faith alone? Is there anything we need to add to what Christ has done for us in order to be saved? And so the first question, do the Gentiles first have to become Jews? Do they have to obey all the moral and ritualistic law? And question two, if the Gentiles don't have to become ritualistic Jews, then how were the devout Jews, who were followers of Jesus also, supposed to fellowship with the Gentiles? How do they fellowship with one another? See, because if one person sees that you are expressing your freedom in Christ, yet to another person they see that that same thing defiles you, how is there to be fellowship between those two believers? And this is what they were facing. The question is not around the moral law of Jesus, not the Ten Commandments. We'll see later Paul teach about holiness and rightness and God's expectation that we live holy and pure lives. So it wasn't around the moral law that these men were debating. It was the ritual law. Do these men have to be circumcised, have to stop eating their steak medium rare, and do they have to get rid of the bacon? These are important questions to be asking. That's what they were debating. Maybe less so on the bacon side of things, but... The ritual law. So we, we pick it up in verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so to answer the question, if there's anything on top of salvation by faith in grace, here are Peter's argument. So the question, do the Gentiles have to become ritualistic Jews? Well, Peter's first argument, he recalls Acts chapter 10 and Cornelius. Peter goes to him, he preaches the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and so Peter's first argument is that there was nothing ritualistic going on in Cornelius's house 
when the Holy Spirit came upon them and saved them. Peter simply preached Jesus crucified. The Holy Spirit fell, looked upon Cornelius' heart, and by faith in, Corn- in grace, Cornelius was saved. His second argument is a pearler. He's like, brothers, seriously, are we really asking these Gentiles to do what we as Jews have not been able to do? You know, even our fathers couldn't do this and what, you know, we haven't been able to keep it. So what, we're expecting them to try and do it too? It's a good argument, I think. The moral law was given to us to point out that we fail at it. We all fail at it. The Ten Commandments, they were given as, as like a mirror that we would see that we are not worthy. Are you a liar? Of course you are. And, and so am I. Have we coveted? Of course we have. We have looked upon people who have been blessed and questioned why. We have looked upon people who have suffered misfortune who we don't think deserved it and we struggle heaps with that. I haven't committed murder, but can I tell you that if there was a special calling to a special ministry that, that involved a club, at times that would be really handy. N- not a club, a, a, a club, you know. You get where I'm coming from. Maybe you don't, but that, maybe that's just me. I haven't committed adultery, but I need to shield my eyes. Should I keep going? We are all guilty of them all. The only test that matters around the moral law, we fail at. And we fail because it's actually designed for us to fail. It was never meant to be that we would be saved by the moral or ritual law. It was meant that we would see that we needed to be saved. The ritual law was no different. It's too strict. We can't do it. And so there is good news that there is a righteousness that superseded the righteousness of the Pharisees, the righteousness of Christ. And so his argument is that God has done it for us in Christ. So Peter's argument is that we're being saved by the same way that Cornelius was saved, by grace in faith. That's how salvation worked. And so his argument is that God is already doing it this way. Then Barnabas and Paul join in the argument. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So Paul and Barnabas, they jump up and they start testifying to all the things that God has been doing in and through them and all the men and women who've come to know Jesus Christ all of these people who have been converted, all of these churches that have been established. And remember last week, you know, all the different people from all the different uh, heritages that that came together. Did did you notice who was missing from that list of people we went through last week? A white dude. There was no white dude in that list. And here are these people saying that they must become Jews first and Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, they don't because they've already been saved. They're now sharing the gospel and others are coming to Christ. God is so at work in these people that this very question is nonsense. And then James comes in. All the heavy hitters here, isn't it? Peter, Paul, Barnabas, James. It's a good list. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentile. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things things known from long ago. And so James says this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult 
for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So James's argument is, a, is different to Peter, Barnabas and Paul's argument. His argument is that God told us from day one that this is what he is doing. And he quotes Amos and Jeremiah to prove his point that from day one, God would ransom from among all the tribes, tongues and nations of the earth and that he would make a new people no longer singularly marked out by ethnic preference but rather a new man that has at its end a desire to make much of Jesus in a variety of ways. And this is what God has been up to since day one. And so James's argument is God told us it was going to be this way from the very beginning. So we will not ask the Gentiles to become Jews. But it creates a problem. How are they going to fellowship together with one another? What if one person sees something as an expression of their freedom that another person sees as defiling and crushing? How will they to fellowship together? Now I wish they had have gone down the answer of do away with the Jewish rituals and stuff and just become Christian. You know, just ha- enjoy the freedom. I-, I wish that that's what they said. Because that would make it very easy for us, right? Just enjoy the freedoms that you have. But that's not what—that's not the path they took. And I guess if I use a modern day example, I'll use this. What if one of us loves a good bottle of wine? You love it. And you're well within your biblical rights to enjoy it. There is nothing biblically sinful in that glass. There are many who might argue against the wisdom of it, but no one can support calling drinking wine sinful with any biblical integrity at all. What if your brother or sister, however, doesn't enjoy that freedom? What if for your brother, one glass turns into two glasses, turns into three bottles, and the next thing he wakes up in Adelaide with a new tattoo? Do you still bring out the bottle? That's the question at hand. The Jews viewed blood as defilement. They viewed certain aspects of sexual immorality that were prevalent in the Gentiles as defilement. So not only were they defiling for the Gentile, but for the Jew to be around them was also for them to be defiled by a Gentile's actions. And so how are we going to solve the issue if the Gentiles are free and enjoy their freedom as God has designed it? It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles to return to God. Verse 20, Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So if you notice here, James says we're not going to put any of the ritual laws of the Jews onto them, except then he lists pretty much every single one except for circumcision. Did you notice that? He says, you know, he's like, we're not going to make them do the rituals except for these rituals. So what's going on here? It doesn't make sense. What is going on? Well, I believe that it's actually a beautiful picture of a healthy Christian family. My rights are laid down for your good. That's what's going on. Have you ever really taken notice of marriage vows? What is the one line that seems to always be central for better or for worse? And it seems strange that on your wedding day you acknowledge that things would get worse. Wouldn't you think that you'd want to be making something for better or for betterer? You know, that's what you want on your wedding day. Everything's lovely. You know, you're probably in the best shape you'll be in your life ever. Um, For those that do that thing, it, it just seems strange that you'd acknowledge that things would get worse on your wedding day. But that's because marriage, it's a covenant. Marriage is a covenant between two people and God. It's about what I will do for you in this marriage, regardless of whether life is great or life is hard, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. Now, I reckon there's only a few things in this world 
that are less attractive than someone vomiting, right? I get motion sickness and I get it bad. Oh, and it seems to be getting worse as I'm aging too, which is ridiculous. Um, last year we went to Tasmania and we went for a two-week winter escape. And so we went on the Spirit of Tasmania. So we would have our our um, car with us. How beautiful does that look? You know, beautiful ship, nice calm seas. Yeah, well, so we started from Melbourne, of course, and going through Port Phillip Bay, exploring the ship with the kids. And I thought, look, I've been on this boat enough times to know it gets rough from the heads to, to, to Devonport. So that's the majority of the trip, you know. So if, it, if it's anything other than a, than a gentle swell, I'll, I'll be gone. So I got into bed nice and early, beat the rest of the family, which never happens, and laid down. And then, you know, I was in bed. The family come in. And we, went, we go through the heads. And, well, let me tell you that it was rough. It was rough. Um, I lasted probably, at best, I'd like to think I got to an hour and a half. Um, and actually, Serena spewed first, and I'm such a sympathetic guy, I started spewing. And I kept going, and I spewed, and I spewed, and I spewed. I emptied everything that was in my stomach. I emptied everything that was in my bile ducts. I emptied absolutely everything I, that was in me into this bag, and then something tore within my esophagus passage somewhere, and then I started spewing up blood. And it was at this point that I said to Kelly, I said, Kelly, you're going to need to get some help. And the ship, it is rocking, it is rolling, it is pitching, it is turning. It was one of the roughest crossings I had that season. And so Kelly's like, okay, I'll go and get some help. So we're in a cabin on the inside of the ship, and she's got to go down, I think, one or two flights of stairs to get to the main deck where all the staff were at the bar area and everything. So she does that, you know, holding on to the, the rails and she goes down and then there's this, this um, where, where the, the, the area opens up the, to, the, to the bar area where she knew staff were. It just opens up to this big wide expanse. And so she's like, there's nothing to hold on here. And so the staff can see her and they're just like, uh-huh. And she's like, I need help. They're like, what? And so she had to go to them. So here she is, you know, as the ship's pitching all the way around, going down and, and finally sees someone and gives them the room that we're in and, and that we need help, that I'm, I'm, I'm no good. And so um, the lady goes, oh, I'll, I'll go with you back and so that, you know, we can make sure and I can get the person to come and everything. So, um, you know, this staff member is just walking like it's another day, you know, just straight down the middle of the thing and Kelly's here like going this way and then going that way, grabbing hold of something and trying to get through my hero in pyjamas. And um, finally they got back, they find a guy who comes and gives me an injection and immediately the knot in my stomach just is relaxed. And, and, the, and the relief comes. Um, one more spew and then I was done. Um, and that then took me about oh, a week to get over. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things that is not attractive. Not at all. It's not. Seeing someone who vomit is not attractive. And so I wanted to um, highlight that that is a great example of covenant. That's marriage as a covenant. It, there was no romance in that moment at all. I can tell you that much. None whatsoever. But Kelly was my hero in pyjamas. And so I wanted to just highlight that as an example. Praise the Lord. Marriage is a covenant. That it's not reliant upon how you feel towards someone every moment of the day because it is a covenant relationship. It is what I can do for you, not how I'm feeling about 
things, it determines what I'm going to do for you. Marriage is a covenant commitment that is made between two people and God. And you know what? Church is a covenant as well. Or at least it should be. See, it's not a contract relationship. If you do this, I will do that. It's a covenant. It's like saying, you know, regardless of what you do, I'm not going anywhere. As we walk with one another in this covenantal relationship together, that means we adopt a posture towards each other that I am for you. I want to serve you. I long to become this for you. I long to do that for you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to help you in your in your ongoing maturation. And so if this would cause you to stumble, if this would cause you to grow weary, if this would make you lose heart, I'm not going to do it. I wouldn't enter into that. That's the covenant relationship. And so we should constantly be laying our freedoms down so that our brothers and sisters might flourish. You might be saying, hold on, but, but where it's all about me and what, what about what I want and what I deserve? You know, it's not sin, so, so how can you tell me not to do it? Well, if you adopt that sort of posture, what it does is it just highlights and reveals a, a wicked, selfish, life-sucking, all-about-me attitude that is contrary to the gospel. James isn't trying to lay down ritualistic law. What he's saying is, consider your brother's When you walk with one another, consider your brothers that you fellowship with. Don't do anything that would rob them of being able to enjoy your company and enjoy the Lord. That's why if you come to my house for a meal, I'm not going to crack out any alcohol because I don't think it's wise because I don't know all of your story. I might occasionally personally enjoy a bevy or two, but I'm not going to bring it out if you come to my house. And that's not because I'm stingy. It's because I think it's the wise way to do it. I don't want to cause anyone to stumble. And so we pick the passage up in verse 22 of Acts chapter 15. The the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greeting. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and sent them to you, with our dear friends Barnabas and Saul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirement. You would abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So let me explain what's happened here. Where doubt and fear was running rampant, the gospel has been 
reintroduced to the church in Antioch. And they celebrated. You know, from the moment we came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ until the last breath that we take, over and over and over again, we will need to be re-gospel. We will need to be reminded about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. We can so easily slip into being legalistic. We can so easily slip into the pattern of life that we forget about the gospel. You know, we're going to look around for the rest of our life and see people who appear further along than we are, who seem more passionate than we are, who seem more disciplined than we are. We will have our own struggles in the realm of morality, in the realm of the life of our mind. We'll have our own struggles in the pursuit of God. At times it will be super high, at other times it won't be high at all. And in the middle of that wrestle, what we need most and what we will need most is to be reminded of the gospel. We just tend to forget it. And so the gospel will be a constant flavour of our gatherings here because we all need to be reminded of the gospel and apply the gospel to our circumstances over and over again. God, I am a sinner in need of your grace. That's the gospel. He has done it all for us. See, church is not about conforming to right morals and the right behaviour and actions that would see you belong here. Church is all about the love of Jesus, the grace outpoured for us on the cross and the way that good news, the gospel, transforms our life. It's not about conforming, it's about transformation. If all your effort and energy is going into trying to modify your behaviour to be a good Christian, you are not free. You are not. Now there are some seasons where, my goodness, we will need to work hard. You know, where prayer just seems like this this burden that we have to just sort of like lump under just to, to, to pray out of. We've all been there. There will be times where we're just opening God's word and reading it. Our mind will just wander effortlessly and we won't be able to focus. You know, I've been there. We've all been there, right? You know, and, and you know, God in time frees us up from those things. But may our foundation be found on the gospel and the gospel alone. And from there, from that foundation, we set out to do the work of the ministry, to share the gospel. If we try to establish our work on anything other than the firm foundation of the gospel, if there's any motivation then other than the gospel, then, then we are building on uneven ground. The foundation will not hold and it will end badly. And so this morning I just want to challenge us. Do you need to hear the gospel again? Are there areas in your life where you have replaced the freedom of the gospel with some sort of strict law version of what the Pharisees tried to put on people? You know, Is there an area where where you are, are, are saying, you know, you, the, the Spirit's convicting you right now and, and speaking into your life and saying, this is an area you need to, to work on. You need to hear the gospel in this area of life. You have replaced the freedom in Christ with something that is legalistic. You have placed your pride above what is best, humility in the gospel, the grace and freedom of that. Has there been a hurt from your past that you are, are, are suffering from from unforgiveness? Has someone done something to you, hurt you? Have they set an example that has just destroyed your concept of, of a good God? Is there an area in your life where you need to forgive someone you know, and let the gospel set you free? Let the gospel restore a rightness in your spirit? So I'm going to pray and we're going to just ask the Lord to help us sit on this foundation 
of the gospel. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we we come before you now and Lord, we acknowledge that at times in our lives we have replaced the freedom of the gospel with a set of rules of do's and don'ts and you know, things that might make us look like a good Christian or feel like a good Christian. But Lord, those areas so quickly become areas of pride and and become sinful. Lord, we, we look around and we see our brothers and sisters in Christ and at times we are envious of, of people who we, we, we think have got it together better than we do. And so Lord, I pray that you would cast afresh your gospel into our hearts, that Lord, the good news that Jesus has paid it all, that we are no longer slaves to sin but lord we have been forgiven by your righteousness by your the shedding of your blood on the cross for us so that we could accept the free gift of pardon for our sins that you offer to us and lord maybe we're struggling with with unforgiveness maybe there's been hurt or there's been pain or there's been been something that has prevented us from entering into this richness of of whole relationship with you lord jesus lord we just ask you to speak the gospel fresh into that area right now lord that christ has done it all that we are forgiven in him and may out of that position and experiencing your love lord jesus may we be able to offer forgiveness to that person or to those things that have hurt us, Lord. So, Lord, we ask that we continue to form a healthy life on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we ask for your forgiveness where we've failed in the past and we ask for your strength to continue to preach the gospel to ourselves each and every day and live in the reality that we are saved by faith in grace. Lord, we thank you.